Technically, the whole animal is offered to the idol. So any of that food that's been offered is under discussion here. Now, what's also under discussion is is eating in the idol's temple, which could have been an equivalent of going to a restaurant. In other words, here's here's the worship spot, and here's where we're serving the leftover meat, because the meat offered to the priest would have been more than he could eat. He, you know, if, if there's one person after another bringing sacrifices, he can't eat it all. So he sells it, either cooked, or he sells it to a butcher shop and they sell it. And so this question the Christians are having, is it okay to eat this meat? They want a yes or no answer. The Apostle Paul doesn't give them a yes or no answer. He gives them three chapters of principle. And today we want to get right into the heart of this principle in this chapter. The things that we've learned in our previous weeks is this. Whatever the answer is going to be, a strong believer, a God-strong believer, aspires to love other believers. In other words, the, the, uh, the, the way the Corinthians were defining strength is this. Strength is personal freedom. I'm personally free to eat this meat, and I feel fine when I do it, so that's all that matters. They would define strength as personal freedom. God says, no, strength is not demonstrated by personal freedom, but by love for other believers. It takes more strength to love, which means laying down your life and caring for others than it does to love yourself. (laughs) Loving ourselves is natural and easy. Loving others is spiritual and challenging. The third thing we learned is strong believers know who God is. We referenced that this morning uh, in the Lord's Supper. We spent some time on that a couple of weeks ago. A, A truly strong believer does understand who God is. They do understand that an idol is nothing. And they do understand that, and they live in light of that. But the thing we're going to... And then strong believers understand the process of spiritual growth. Um, When he references that here in uh, um, verse, he talks about uh, verse 2. Nobody knows everything the way he ought to know. And he talks about the different kinds of knowledge. And and the idea here has to do with the strong and the weak and and understanding that, that we grow up in Christ together Um, and we have to know how people grow. The thing that we're going to focus in on today, and and in some ways the real heart of the message in this chapter is here, strong believers care for or love weak believers. And the first thing that Paul tells us about is the awful potential, we could say, of not caring for them. Look at verse 7. He's just talked about the fact that there's only one God, that there is no such thing as an idol God. Verse 7, he says, though, however, there's not in everyone this knowledge. Not everyone thoroughly understands the truth about God and the truth about idols or false gods. And so what happens? There's not in everyone that knowledge. And here he says what happens for some with a consciousness or their deep-seated conviction is that there is an idol until now when they eat the meat that has been sacrificed to an idol, they 
eat it like something that has been sacrificed. They don't just see meat, they see a sacrifice. And what is the result? Their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Then look at verse 9. Beware lest your liberty, you who are strong, become a stumbling block to those who are weak. It's possible for the weak Christian, the one who is struggling with this issue, to to trip and to fall spiritually. And then verse 11, and because of your weak, you who call yourself strong, because of your knowledge, you who call yourself strong, shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? And then verse 12, when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience. And then verse 13, if food makes my brother to stumble. This is the awful potential that is in certain issues that Christians have to deal with. It's possible that some Christians who are not sinning, they are honoring the Lord in their life, but if they're not careful with the way they do it, somebody else's conscience can be defiled. Somebody else can stumble spiritually. They can perish. They can have a wounded conscience. They fall down. Now, if you have the King James Version in verse 13, it says, therefore, if food makes my brother to offend, I will never again eat meat. And then in many translations in 1 Corinthians 10 that we'll get to in a few weeks, it says, give no offense either to the Jews or the Greeks or to the church of God. And the word offend or offense has created some misunderstandings among Christians. Some Christians understand the word offend to mean that anything which they don't like is wrong. The statement is, that offends me. Do you know that's what goes on in the politically correct society of America now? Oh, you wouldn't say that you're acting like those politically correct folks, would you? I don't like that. It offends me, so you have to stop. In my first church, as an associate pastor, you know, back in the day, pastors always sat on the platform in little pastor's pews. They had a little pew there, about three feet long, little one there, maybe four feet long, depending on how big the pastor was. <clears throat> Pulpit, got the choir in the back, got the organ, got the piano. That's the way I was raised. My first church, I was sitting on the pastor's pew, and somebody went to the pastor and said, he's not spiritual. And he said, oh, why is that? Do you see how he sits on the platform? (laughs) They were offended at the way that I sat. I I honestly don't remember how it was. I know that, uh, you know, you can ask my wife if you want some verification. It's hard for me to be comfortable in most chairs. A man was offended once when I promoted a youth event a certain way. Somebody was offended that we had a student from a certain Bible college working at our church camp uh, years ago. Somebody was offended at a song that I sang one time. 
A woman was offended that I exhorted her to be in submission to her husband. Christians may be upset by many things, but that is not what God is talking about here. God does not say anytime you are offended, somebody else has to change their behavior. That is not what he's talking about. Now, there may be reasons to deal with certain things, but not because of this text. The key word here is the word stumble. The word stumble, and the word offend is most often translated stumble. It's the same word, verse 13. If food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. This is a key word, and so we need to study it for just a minute here. And the word stumble is used in a very literal way in a text you'll be familiar with when I show it to you. It's from when Christ was being tempted by the devil. And so the meaning of the word stumble is offend is stumble. And the devil said to Christ, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down off the pinnacle of the temple. He shall give his angels charge over you and in their hands they shall bear you up lest you stumble your foot against a stone lest you dash your foot against a stone. The devil quotes the Old Testament in trying to tempt Jesus to take matters into his own hand, throw himself down. He said, you know the angels will come because they can't let you break any bones. But he particularly says, lest you dash your foot against a stone. If you have the NIV or the New American Standard with that verse, it will say, strike your foot against the stone. When I stub my toe on the bed frame in the dark, as I did last night, my toe is offended. <laughs> Have you ever done it really bad to where you, in the morning you're thinking, I think it's broken. <laughs> it's all black and bluish. Oh, it hurts like the devil. That's the word. To be offended, it literally means something like to stumble or to, to have a, an obstacle placed there that you trip over. And we gotta plug that back into 1 Corinthians chapter eight because that, it's in some spiritual sense, that's what's being spoken of. He said it's possible for some Christians who call themselves strong to act in such a way that these other Christians stumble spiritually. That's what he's concerned about. What does it mean for a weak believer to strike his foot against a stone? Well, I would continue with the analogy. When you stub your toe real hard, what happens besides the muffled cursing that you hope God and your children don't hear? Yeah, you fall down in pain. You sit down and hold your foot and go, oh. It's, it's an incapacitating kind of thing. And there may be a lasting hurt or a bruise or there could even be something broken that takes time to heal. That's the image that Paul is trying to draw here. 
Look at um, verse 9. But beware, lest somehow the liberty, the freedom that you feel in Christ to do certain things becomes actually an opportunity for a weak believer to fall down and to be spiritually hurt. To be spiritually hurt. Look at verse 13. If food makes my brother to get spiritually injured, I will never eat meat again. Paul expounds on this in Romans 14. Do not destroy the work of God. That's talking about people, not buildings or something like that. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure. In other words, yes, it's okay, but it's evil for a man who eats with offense. In other words, if the man eats, he's gonna make someone stumble. It's good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbles. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself and what he approves. He's still talking about the same kinds of things, this meat sacrifice to idol. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith for whatever is not from faith is of sin. The weak believer who sees a mature Christian eating the meat sacrificed to an idol isn't offended as we use the word. He isn't upset with the mature Christian. On the contrary, he sees the behavior of the mature Christian commending him to eat the meat. But when he eats, the result is he feels guilty for being unfaithful to Christ. Because he doesn't have that strong conviction yet that an idol is nothing, he thinks the idol still is something. Somehow he goes to eat the meat, and he thinks, well, it's gonna be okay, and he eats it, and when he's done, he thinks, oh, I've just, I've just spiritually betrayed Christ. John Phillips, in his commentary, said it very well. The weaker believer, the weaker brother, still believes that the meat which finds its way from the temple to the market really is tainted by association with the pagan temple and idol. He cannot shake himself free from this conviction burned into his soul by years of paganism before he met Christ or by the rigid upbringing he's had as a Jew before his conversion. What he alludes to here is this. There can be two sources of this weakness. One is somebody who just lived in whatever that sin was and whatever that terrible thing was, they lived in it, and so they just believe that it's a wicked thing. But there can also be people who have been raised in a, in a legalistic sense, and they believe that thing is wrong. And, and when God says, no, an idol is nothing, both of them are going, no, 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 it's something. And when they participate, because of the model by the mature Christian, their conscience is hurt. Now, here's where it gets even worse. Look at verse 11. Not only is their conscience damaged, but it talks about the weak brother perishing. Now, I don't believe this is teaching us that they're going to lose their salvation and go to hell. 
The whole balance of the New Testament says, no, once you have truly been born again, you're never going to die and go to hell. But this word perish also gives the idea of just things being torn apart, being broken down. And so what happens when a believer sins that old, familiar sin again? They are tempted to, and they often do, give up on righteousness because they feel like a failure. Since I'm already down here, it isn't going to hurt to sin some more. And what happens next? The one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction or ruin You are either growing in Christ and experiencing the abundant life in greater measure, or you're living in sin, experiencing an increasing downward spiral of destruction. Now, again, let let me just summarize this. When that weak Christian does the thing that in their conscience they think this is wrong, It caused them to be so defeated that they continue to make sinful choices and that leads to ruin in their life. Now, some of you may be thinking, why are you spending so much time on the meat sacrificed to idols, Pastor Dave? No one in Verndale that we know of is eating meat sacrificed to idols. Can I get a witness on that? Yeah, you could go to the nail salon and see the Buddha with the food, but other than that, it isn't happening. But God's word is timeless, so there must be an equivalent that we need to be aware of, and indeed, there is. Now, I'm going to tell you right now something that I'm going to tell you again at the end of my sermon. I'm not going to give you hard and fast, concrete, absolute actions that you need to go out and do this week. And you know why? Because the way that God wants every one of you to apply this in your life is going to be a little bit unique. Hang in there and you'll see what I mean. The current equivalent, why did God include this for us in America in 2015? Well, you need to know, first of all, that, let me see, where does it go next? Right there. Um, you do need to know, first of all, that there are people in other parts of the world that are still eating meat sacrificed to idols. Okay? We have retired missionaries in this church that know that's true. In fact, I asked some of them at prayer meeting a couple of weeks ago. um, I said, hey, has this ever been a thing for you? And Iola Boyer, who served her whole career out in Africa, she goes, oh yeah, she said, I went to a certain place to a certain special dinner, and I I ate, and so on. And afterward, the unbeliever who had been behind this dinner made fun of her for eating the meat sacrificed to idols. They thought they put one over on the Christian. To them, clearly, there was a relationship to their God They got her to participate, you see. So there is still a thing there in the world, just not in Ferndale so much. Or is there? 
Uh, there could be some equivalence. I want you to think, we're going to take this, this specific and render it down into a principle. And this is what you really got to take away today. The principle that God is teaching is broader than the specific application. In this text, there is both principle and application. And the the truth is this, neutral things can be used in sinful activity and become associated with that sinful activity. The meat was just meat. Nothing changed about the meat when it was offered to an idol. It remained a neutral thing. It was just meat. But it was clearly used in a sinful activity. And so it becomes a spiritual issue, even though the meat is still a neutral thing. So what are some contemporary equivalents? Where am I at? Where are some contemporary equivalents. I want to give you some issues that have sort of fallen under this. People have tried to put these issues under this in my lifetime. My own, my own connections to these, okay? And some of them you're going to snicker at, and some of them you won't, but I'm going to, I'm going to share these things, and then at the end of it, I'm going to help you to understand how they really if it were possible for them to fall under this. Pinball. Pinball's wicked, you know. Because originally, pinball paid out money. If you won, you just didn't get the high score and your name up in lights. You got money. That made it... Ooh, how smart you are. That's right, it made a gambling. And we all know that gambling is wicked. So it was wicked for a Christian to play pinball. But not only that, let me take it one step farther. When I was a young person, bowling alleys were wicked places because they had pinball. I remember the first time I went to a bowling alley, it was a, there was a church function, and we went to the bowling alley and thought, holy smokes. Yeah. Okay. Pinball is a neutral thing. It is a physical game. It was associated with gambling, which is a sinful thing. Again, I'm going to come back to these in a minute. Playing cards. Okay. I don't know if there's some proper name for this, but you know what we're talking about here. Obviously, playing cards are associated with many things, gambling and, and uh, other things that go along with that. Um, because of that, they're sinful. Uh, it must have been a Christian who invented the game Rook, which is just a bunch of numbers on cards. Essentially, you play the games the same way that you play some of these games, but it's just numbers, so they're righteous. So when I was in Bible college, we played Rook. Uh, dancing. Uh, much dancing, much dancing today. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to watch Dancing with the Stars and know that dancing is often associated with sexual innuendo, could even call it sexual foreplay of a sort. Not this kind of dancing. But I was not permitted to do square dancing in PE class because dancing is wicked. Okay? 
Um, certainly a little easier to understand alcohol. Um, as I said last week, we rarely went to a, if, if it was possible, we did not go to a restaurant that served alcohol. Back in the day, it was actually possible to find the restaurants like that. Today, um, just about everywhere, you know, except McDonald's, uh, serves alcohol. <laughs> See how spiritual I am? <laughs> <laughs> Um, clearly alcohol, I mean, believe me, from my time, I, I have seen some of the craziest things done by drunk people. My time with working with police departments over the years, honestly, if you took alcohol out of our society, you could probably reduce the police force by 80%, you know, something like that. Uh, really, the, the issue obviously is drunkenness, but because of its association with sin, it's wrong, it's wicked, it's gone, it's done. Um, microphones, did you know that microphones used to be wicked? Oh yes, only worldly people use microphones. Real singers don't need microphones. And only worldly people hold the microphone. That's a wicked thing. And so we didn't hold them, we put them on stands, and then eventually we just all became wicked. <laughs> and of course, guitars. When I was a, a young man, uh, I, I was in a uh, group, 1977, 76. I was in a group with about five other people. We had a guitar player and a few other instruments. We sang at a church in the, the Bay Area. And after we were done, they sent us down to the fellowship hall. And the pastor stood up and apologized for the worldly music we had just played. Because there was a guitar there. And I know for a fact that pastor has a guitar in his church today. Okay. People forget that one of the most famous Christian songs of all was written for a guitar. Silent night, holy night, in 1818. Yeah. Television. Um, you know, there's been, there's, there are sort of waves of this among the Christian community Clearly, there are things on TV that are wicked and that we shouldn't be looking at. Some, every so often, there's a movement to say just, you know, TV is wicked, get rid of it, and so on. And uh, what about Halloween itself? Many Christians are offended by Halloween. Now, I called these things current equivalents, but that's not quite true. Because if you were paying attention to what I have been trying to say out of 1 Corinthians 8, you realize it's not about people being offended and it's not about just some people thinking certain issues are wrong. The issue is whether the weaker brother is made to stumble spiritually. So as such, some examples, one would be Halloween. Put your thinking cap on with me, class, and ask this question. 
Under what circumstances would Halloween and the participation in Halloween, and I'm just going to use that word, I'm not talking about our parking lot party, um, I'm talking about kind of traditional Halloween stuff, under what condition would that be something that mature Christians should say, absolutely not? It would go something like this, I think. This would be one example of it. Here is a, a believer, a, a newer believer, hasn't known the Lord too long, and in their old life, they were in the church of Satan. Maybe they practiced Wicca. That's the fancy word for witchcraft, if you don't know that today. And they practiced these things, and they believed these things, and maybe they were even in contact with real evil spirits and saw some things happen. And they came to Christ, and they were liberated. And they came to your house on October 31st, and you're having a Halloween party. And they're going, whoa. Now maybe they dressed up and had fun and made happy, but in their heart, when they went home, they thought, I left that behind, and I feel like I'm back there worshiping Satan or the spirit of the earth again. That's a Christian who has stumbled, especially if that sense of failure propels them into other sin. That's what this passage is talking about. That's a little different than just being upset because you don't like something. We're talking about really hurting people. Football. <laughs> there isn't, uh, unless you skip choir to watch the game today, then that's wicked. No, but I, I use this, I read an example, I thought that's a good example. One of the commentaries I read, this brother said, he knew a fellow who, used, he was a Christian, and he was so, I'll use the word addicted to football, that he, whenever, when football season, he never came to church, because he had to be there watching a football game, and he bet on the games. And when he came to his senses, he got right with the Lord, and he said, that is, what I have been doing is wrong, and he stopped that and started coming to church. Now, for that brother, he had to stop watching football. Whoa, talk about, if your right hand offends you, cut it off. <laughs> for that brother, he had to stop watching football. And the commentator talked about the interaction they had when, you know, at some, you know, it wasn't during a Sunday morning service, but there was some time they had people together, and, and he told the guy, we're going to watch the football game. Are you okay with that? And he was. He had grown to that point. But you can understand that the, here's a guy who, who thinks, I have been betraying Christ for football, and now I'm living for the Lord. And maybe there's some other brother who says, yeah, I skipped church last week to watch the game. And so he thinks, yeah, you know, maybe that would be okay. And so he stays home to watch the game, and his conscience is wounded because he just goes right back to that sinful place where he used to live. See, that's what this passage is talking about. Now here's a, a much more contemporary and perhaps easy to get a hold of example with alcohol. 
Now, I, I just want to set a little ground here, lest you go out saying, I approve of this or I approve of that. Okay? I'm a non-drinker. I've always been all my life. There were two or three things that if I did, I knew I would perish because of my father. <laughs> one of them was drinking and one of them was smoking. Uh, I, am, I am a non-drinker. My doctor about three years ago said, you ought to drink a glass of red wine every day. And I tasted it somewhere and I just thought, I can't do it. I just, I'm not interested. Hey, and, and I understand I've never drank any good red wine, and so maybe you can introduce me to that, and I'll become an alcoholic and lose my ministry. <laughs> I'm a non-drinker. I believe that drinking alcohol, for most people in our society today, is a dangerous thing. That's my opinion. And I'm stating it that way. I'm not so much saying that's God's opinion, but... I know that the wine that was drank in the Bible times was commonly mixed with water, and it was a water purification system. And if you don't know that, you do the research. You go home and Google it today, and you'll find they cut their wine by three to four times with water, which means the alcohol content was minimal. Okay. And I know that it is not a sin to drink some alcohol. Okay. I understand that, but I just want you to understand where I'm coming from. But I also know that if I did drink alcohol, some of you would be offended. That is, you would be upset with me. But what I also know is some of you might be made to stumble, and that is what would concern me. That's why the Apostle Paul said, it's good neither to drink eat meat or drink wine or do anything by which your brother stumbles. Now, who would be the person who would stumble? It's not hard for us to imagine, here's this brother or sister who, who either comes to the Lord or comes to their senses out of alcoholism or addiction or enslavement, whatever you'd like to call it. And they come to the Lord and they're, they're liberated. For the first time in their life, they got a clear head and a clear heart and a clear mind with the Lord. And oh, they're enjoying life. And they come to Pastor Dave's house for dinner. And he says, would you like a little wine with your dinner? And they think, well, must be okay. Pastor Dave has, so they have it. And it wouldn't be any different if it was you, by the way. And they don't get drunk, but they go home and they feel like they've just betrayed the Lord who delivered them. Ah, man, I, I got to stay away from that. That's wrong. But somehow the, 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 the defilement of their conscience propels them toward sin. That's the stumbling that this passage is talking about. The weaker brother or sister who sees a more mature brother or sister doing some neutral activity isn't offended or upset with the mature Christian. On the contrary, they see that action as an endorsement which encourages him to participate and then the guilty conscience comes and then the choices that are wrong come. And so what does Paul say about us? And I'm, gonna count, I'm just going to use myself. I count myself as a, as a stronger brother. 
I could eat the meat sacrificed to idols. It would not hurt my conscience. Okay. I don't drink in first part because I just don't care for it. I don't know whether I could drink and not get drunk. Okay. But I count myself as a stronger brother. I don't know how you count yourself. That's the, one of the big questions of this message is to say, are you really stronger or not? So if you count yourself as stronger, ask this question. How are the stronger Christians to act toward the weaker? And this is not strong and weak like I'm good and you're not that good or I'm better than you. This is strong and weak like the weak hasn't had time to mature yet. It might even be better to say mature and immature. All those words have baggage with them. I understand that. But you know what we're talking about because you've been paying attention here. How are the stronger Christians to act toward the weaker? First of all, we should act in light of eternal values. Look at verse 8. Food doesn't commend us to God, neither if we eat are we the better. If we don't eat, we're the worse. What Paul says is, hey, strong Christian who can eat the meat sacrificed to an idol, you just told me the meat doesn't change the spiritual standing of the brother, so it also doesn't change your spiritual standing. Therefore, why don't you give it up? I kind of like that meat. It's cheaper than other places. It's better than other places. Hey, if meat doesn't matter, let it go. And in fact, meat doesn't matter. <laughs> We support a national brother and whose country and name I will not mention because this is played all over the world and he lives in a persecuted place with two, uh, with two majorities of, of other faiths that are not favorable to Christians. And one of those majorities does not eat pork. And one of those majorities does not eat cows. And so the brother says to me, we eat a lot of chicken. <laughs> now, is he free? Is he free to eat the pork and the beef? Yes, he is. Yes, he is. But he cares about people's souls more than his dinner. That's the point Paul is making in verse 8. He's saying, hey, the food doesn't matter. What matters is having an eternal mindset. If you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, you will also appear with him. He says, get an eternal value. When you see Jesus face to face, do you think you'll look back and think, I wish I ate more pork? No, none of the stuff of earth, the physical stuff of earth will matter at all. What will matter is the people who were encouraged to grow in Christ. And that's when we have an eternal perspective, when we have God on our mind, this is how we act. We who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those who are without strength and not just to please ourselves. We ought to bear the weaknesses of the weak. Not only must we care for our brothers, but we need to care about what God thinks. Look at verse 12. 
This is pretty significant because God doesn't put the burden for other people's sin onto us except in a couple of cases, and this is one of them. Verse 12, but when you thus sin against the brethren, the weaker brethren, and wound their weak conscience, you also sin against Christ. And so we should act in light of divine accountability. Now be careful here. Um, Be careful here. Someone else's weakness does not turn my liberty into sin for me. In other words, let me go back to 1 Corinthians. If I went to a meat market and got a piece of meat that had been sacrificed to an idol and nobody saw me buy it and nobody saw me around the temple and I take it home and cook it and eat it, it's perfectly fine and God is perfectly happy with that. But if my brothers and sisters see and are influenced and so on, that's when the problem comes. So just the fact that they are weak and struggling doesn't mean I have to completely change my life, my own personal life. But it means I have to make some changes for them. This is the way Jesus talked about people who are spiritually young, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me. And he wasn't talking about little children. He was talking about people who are new believers, the little ones who believe in me to stumble. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Wow. That's exactly what verse 12 is saying. He's saying, listen, if you sin against a weak Christian, you're sinning against Christ. I must care for the weaker brothers and sisters out of a God-driven love for them and a desire to please their heavenly Father who cares very much for them, which means there will be times when I curb my liberty out of care for fellow believers. Now, I said at the beginning of this message, I can't give you the specific answers to every situation in your life. Not my intention to do so. Not my intention to give you a list of the top 10 that Baptists don't do. Because if you take this stuff seriously, you're going to go way beyond that list. See, the real question is, are you living in such a way as to encourage others to grow in Christ? One of the blessings of having some of my grandkids close is I get to see them growing up. And you know, I I, I think, you know, when you're a parent yourself, you're just so frenetic about all the stuff you have to do. And then besides that, I was a pastor and had some other things going on. I'm not sure I really kind of was able to sit and look and enjoy the growing up part of things. I enjoy that with the grandchildren. I enjoy sending them home, too. (laughs) And I'm really amazed at how fragile, somehow I've forgotten the fragile part of little ones. And and, uh, when I see people 
or even myself picking up the kids, I'm always kind of thinking, eh, don't pull their arm off, you know, that kind of thing. When I hear about parents doing some terrible things to their child, like we read about in the news or hear about on TV, it makes me angry and sad. I just can't imagine how a parent would not do all they could to protect and nurture their children. Somehow that's the attitude God wants us to have toward other believers. Especially those who are younger, more immature, weaker, struggling with things. God wants us to be more concerned for them and their growth and maturity. Just like the parent who who sets aside some of their own priorities. They let the kid grow up and they help the kid and, and they take joy in who the kid became. That's the blessing. The fact that you had to set some things aside, eh, that doesn't matter. That's what God wants us to do as Christians. That's what it means to be strong in the Lord. Heavenly Father, help us to be strong in your way. Mm. It's easy for us to be self-centered. Help us to care for others. Father, help us to see this week when we need to set our liberty aside. This is kind of a, this is kind of a fuzzy principle for us. Make it concrete by your Holy Spirit. I pray in Christ's name, amen.